No, I'm going to toe the line. All right. So I'm going to do a shorter talk today. You saw in the email I sent out yesterday, I said, yeah, I read through the passages, and usually Yeshua gives me a message, and he just didn't that time. He didn't. It was, it was remarkable. I usually go through and I write down the things that he, he, he shows me to communicate about or ideas to develop. And that time, it was just nothing, right? I mean, I really enjoyed studying it with him and, and all of that. So uh, I just sat there for like half an hour. I was like, Yeshua, what do you... What do you want to talk about? I know it's just, I really enjoyed being with him, but nothing. So anyway, this morning I was sitting there and all of a sudden four things came to my spirit. So I'll share those four things and then we'll have some discussion. Let's look at Yosef and uh, some, uh, two parallels between him and Yeshua. Now, when you look at the figures in the Torah, there are two figures especially that are prototypical of the Messiah. One of them is Moshe who came with his family on a donkey to the people of Israel, like we talked about last Shabbat. And Moshe said, Yahweh or God's going to send you a prophet like me. Well, that turned out to be Yeshua, who was like Moshe. The other primary figure who's like a Messiah type in the Torah is Yosef. Joseph, the son of Israel. And the sages of Israel have read the story of Joseph, and they have known that this is a prototype of the Messiah but it's paradoxical. There's some things to wrestle with because Joseph gets rejected by his brothers. He's rejected by the people who should receive him. He has these dreams of being the leader of the family, of ruling as it were. And man, it just does not go over very well, right? And so he gets totally rejected. I mean, they're going to kill him and they're like, well, we might as well make a little money off him while we're doing it, so let's sell him into slavery. And he goes down to Egypt and he suffers intensely for 13 years. He was 17 when he was rejected and he finally ascended to the position of viceroy in Egypt at the age of 30. So out of his 30 years of life, 13 of those, almost 50% of his life, was spent down in a foreign culture, total culture shock, I'm sure, learning a new language, being a slave, mistreated, misunderstood, Really brutal life. And this is the Messiah for you. There's something about Joseph that pictures the Messiah. And so the, uh, the sages of Israel in their, um, shall we say, Christology, their understanding of the Mashiach, they came up with the concept of two Messiahs. Because the sages of Israel realized Mashiach is going to be the king. He is going to be triumphant. He's going to be a great ruler like David. Like David plus. And... Yet, Joseph was rejected. Joseph suffered intensely for many years. Joseph was a foreigner in another country. And so the the sages of Israel came up with the concept of two messiahs. First messiah is called the Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah the son of Joseph. He's going to die. In fact, some of the Jewish sages, when you read the ancient literature, suggested that Messiah son of Joseph would be like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He, in fact, Isaiah 53 alludes to Messiah, son of Joseph. And then there would be a second Messiah who would be the triumphant Messiah who would rule. And in fact, there's one legend in the Jewish world that Messiah, son of David, is going to raise Messiah, son of Joseph, from the dead. So Messiah, son of Joseph, is going to suffer and die, and he's going to be raised from the dead. 
Isn't that interesting? That's Jewish understanding of the Mashiach. Now, actually, our understanding as disciples of Yeshua is very close to that, except that we don't believe in two messiahs. We believe in one messiah and two comings. He comes the first time as the son of Joseph. He comes the second time as the son of David. And the first time he came what? Riding what? A scooter. To use a Western equivalent, a donkey. And on the second time, he's coming back riding a tank. Riding a white war horse. So trying to think of some Western equivalents to kind of get the idea. First you come riding, riding in on a scooter. The second time you come in on a tank. Slightly different feel there. That's how Yeshua is coming back. There, I've really been meditating on this lately. I, this is a very practical talk we're going to look at. Joseph was a picture of the Messiah. And Joseph didn't look Jewish at all. If you were to watch Joseph going about his daily duties, interacting with people in the royal court, administering the Egyptian empire, uh, he was clean-shaven. He didn't have a beard. He spoke fluent Egyptian. He was definitely a spiritual person, but you couldn't just watch him and be like, yeah, that guy's Torah observant. Explicitly. He worshipped the one true God, of course. But it's interesting that his, his, his circle that served him in the royal court, they knew he was a spiritual man, but they thought that he practiced divination. They saw him as some kind of practitioner of occultic practices or something. Of course, that wasn't the case, but you remember the cup. He had that silver cup that was stolen, and they said that's the cup he uses to divine, to tell the future. So this was, this was the way the Egyptians saw him, which is kind of interesting because something about that is a picture of Yeshua. So I'm just kind of kind of think about this with me. Now, in in our generation, there is a significant interest in the Jewishness of Jesus. And that started about a century ago in the academic world. Often you'll have a concept in the academic world that is discovered, that is developed, that is written about in the journals, and then it leaks and it hits the public more and you're average dude takes a hold of that and says, yeah, that's true. So um, this would be an example. The Jewishness of Jesus began to really hit the radar of the academic world about a century ago, and today it's a very, it's a, it's a very popular phenomenon. People are like, Jesus was Jewish. That means something. That's cool. Um, another interesting, another interesting, just as a side note, um, trend in the academic world that's now hitting the broader world is the, the trend of Paul as a Torah-observant rabbi, as a, an observant Jew who continued to practice Torah his whole life. You remember the book of Acts? He actually went to the temple. He paid for the sacrifices necessary for four Nazarites to finish their vows. It says when he was at Centria, on his way to Jerusalem, he had his head shaved because of a vow. That was a Nazarite vow. That was ceremonial law. Paul was practicing ceremonial law when he had his head shaved because he was keeping a vow. And do you know how you top that vow? You go to Jerusalem and you make offerings, animal offerings, in the temple. And he was going there to do that. And you know the story, right? The leaders of the Jerusalem community said, Paul, you know, there's some stupid lies going on about you. Um, some people have believed rumors that you actually don't keep the law anymore. You're not observant. And uh, so Paul and these guys decided the best way for Paul to publicly declare that he continued to be Torah observant that he continued to walk in the order that God laid out in the Pentateuch 
was that he should go and pay for these guys' vows and, uh, and make some offerings in the temple. And that's what he was doing when that riot happened. People freaked out and he ended up being arrested and that began a two-year process um, that culminated in his arrival in Rome. Man, if you read the commentaries on that, some people think that was all these Jerusalem legalists' idea and Paul was just a, a weak-kneed, spineless chameleon that just went along with it. He just buckled and with the, to the legalists. That's, such, that's so inconsistent with who Paul is. Did Paul ever back down? Was Paul ever afraid to face anybody and, and to not compromise for the truth of the gospel? Simon Peter was in the uh, Messianic community in Antioch, and Paul thought he was being a little wishy-washy about the gospel. He felt he was like he was being inconsistent. I think he used the word hypocrite. And he confronted him publicly to his face. Like, this is the rock. This is the guy who was appointed as the main leader of the early Messianic community. Paul had no problems with stating very clearly what he thought. And yet, in Acts 21, he makes animal offerings to publicly state that he continued to keep the law. I think we need to go back and read that over again. It's only when we understand the context of a Torah-observant Paul, a, a Shaul that continued to structure his life in accordance with the mitzvot, that we can understand his letters. A Torah-observant Paul is the context for the epistles. Without that context, you end up doing what Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter, warned about at the end of his second letter. He said, you know, our, brother, our dear brother Paul, he writes some stuff that's a little hard to understand. And people who aren't grounded in the word... Lawless types. They're really prone to twist his words, mess it up. Ta-da! 2,000 years later, that was a really perceptive warning. I think we need to go back and read that disclaimer from Simon Peter. So anyway, um, this trend of the Jewishness of Jesus a century ago is now a very popular trend. Um, For a lot of people, that is how their messianic journey begins. That is how their Hebrew roots walk starts. It's like, wow, Jesus was Jewish. I need to explore this. I want to know him better. Uh, For me personally, that was how my journey began, recovering my Jewish heritage, studying the Hebrew language, applying the Torah to my life. It began with like, I love Jesus passionately, and I want to know him better. It's what I live for. And he was Jewish. And I don't know anything about the Jewish world. I have never been to synagogue. This was um, when I hit 20, age 20. And so, you know, I went to an encyclopedia set at home and I looked up Judaism. I thought, you've got to start somewhere. So, you know, for a lot of people, that's the case. And, and this is the good thing. This is the flag that we fly. But at the same time, isn't it interesting that Joseph was a son of Israel? He was circumcised. He was a fourth-generation member of the covenant, very orthodox in terms of his internal faith life. And yet, if you looked at the guy, you would not have guessed it. Clean-shaven, speaking the Egyptian language. He's definitely spiritual, but you just can't really peg who he is from one glance. Isn't that interesting? You know, I'm not saying that we should ditch the Hebrew language. I'm not saying that we should all go and shave. I really love my beard, personally. I really love Casey's beard. He has an awesome beard. And if we had a trophy today for beards, like, you would win the trophy hand down. You know, totally. So I'm not suggesting that we should walk away from that. But when I look at the body of Messiah today, I wonder if things aren't the way they are for a reason. Sometimes we look at the body of Messiah and say, it's so un-Jewish. They just don't keep the Torah. Like, they have no understanding of any Hebrew. And, you know, that's an area where I think we do need to be restored. We do need to grow. But at the same time, I think 
maybe, just like Joseph was in Egypt for a reason, and he looked like an Egyptian, maybe there's a reason that the body of Messiah is in Egypt and looks like an Egyptian. Maybe there's a reason behind this. But maybe this isn't where it ends. It's, it's a thought. I'll, I'll share with you a, a story of, from my life along those lines, a time when I had to look a little more like an Egyptian so that I could go down and serve. Um, my first trip to Israel took me to a Christian German kibbutz. It's kind of funny. I went to Israel, and first they took me to a mall, and I was like, wow, this is a more worldly mall than the malls we even have in Saskatchewan. You know? It's like, I don't feel like I'm in Israel. And, uh, and then I was living with these Christian Germans, so I'd go to these services, and they were on Saturday morning, but they was all in German, singing traditional hymns and preaching like an evangelical-style sermons in German. I was like, wow, this is a really interesting Israel experience. But on my way to Israel, okay, just before I was going to go, I was reading through the Gospel of Yochanan John, and I was reading the story about how the Master washed the feet of his Talmudim. And something jumped out at me that I never saw before. It says Yeshua laid aside his cloak, and then he went and washed their feet. And it just jumped out at me. The cloak, that was, that was what the tzitzit were on. Yeshua laid aside his cloak with the tzitzit on it so that he could serve his brothers. And then I kept reading, right? It was just one of those kind of little epiphanies that flashed through your mind. Okay, so fast forward a little bit. I arrive in Israel, and the man who's facilitating this, 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 this work group with this Christian German kibbutz where we're going to be for six weeks, says, you know, you're wearing tzitzit, and it would actually be better for you to just tuck them in. Just don't let them see that you're wearing tzitzit, because, you know, this is a Christian German kibbutz, and they love Israel, and they're very humble, and they serve Israel, but they still have some of those old notions about the law being done away with. They don't under, understand that, you know, maybe discipleship involves applying Torah to your life and whatever. Okay, and in your average scenario, okay, when I see anti-Semitism, I see red. When I see those old notions about the law being done away with, when Yeshua said, don't think that, I see red. Alright? Like, them's fighting words for me, you know? I'm going to get out my theological boxing gloves and I'm going to defend the Torah. That's me. And, and you know, like, um, and, and, and Jewishness too. I, it really bothers me when, when Jewish believers are misunderstood or when they're not accepted and loved for who they are in the body of Christ. And so, you know, them's fighting words for me. But all of a sudden, when this man said this, I remembered, Yeshua showed me a couple weeks ago that he laid aside his cloak with the tzitzit on it so that he could wash the feet of his disciples. And it was like, boom, gotcha. And I knew he was telling me, it's okay. Right? You don't have to get out your pro-Torah machine gun. You don't have to put on your, your, your boxing gloves. Just be humble. Tuck in your tzitzit. It's okay. Just go to serve. It's not about you. It's about serving my people. So I was like, okay. So I, I tucked them in, right? Really good he showed me that. Or it might have been a little messy. But, but that, that was an example where for me, I had an identity. I had things I was passionate about. I had a flag to fly and it was a good flag. But there was a chapter where Yeshua said, you need to lay aside your cloak, who you are, so that you can serve. Now, I'm not, I, I'm not suggesting that means... Quit being Torah observant. I'm not suggesting that means go and break mitzvot because that is sin. And we never sin to serve. I think it's more of a hard attitude sometimes. 
Are you, are you, are you so consumed in yourself and who you are as a Torah-observant person, as Messianic, as Jewish, or whatever the case may be, are you so kind of wrapped up in the movement that you're a part of that you forget that there is, there is, you have brothers and sisters in the city who believe in Yeshua, but they're just not there yet. Do you have a heart to serve the body of Messiah however you can, even if it means emptying yourself, laying aside your rights, maybe even temporarily forgetting who you are, and kind of stepping out of your box or your comfort zone. I, we see this with Joseph. We really see this with Joseph. So, you know, on the one hand, it's really sad that the concept of a Jewish Jesus is not just misunderstood. It's often, like, totally rejected and hated, even in the church. It's like somehow when he was raised from the dead, you know, he was buried a Jew and raised a Gentile. No, no, no. What does it say? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Right? But at the same time, maybe there's a strategic reason for that. And maybe there will be a time when just like Joseph revealed himself to his brothers in a very emotional, emotionally charged situation where he bared his heart to them, maybe there will be a time when Yeshua reveals himself to his brothers. And maybe there will be a lot of tears. And maybe, that, maybe that's a moment that Yeshua, Mashiach ben Yosef, is really, really longing for and looking forward to. And when that happens... The journey that many of you are on is all of a sudden going to come, it's going to come snapping into sharp focus. It is going to totally come into perspective because it hasn't happened yet. Yeshua has begun to reveal himself supernaturally to individual Jewish people. There are stories like the, uh, the chief rabbi of Bulgaria, Rabbi Daniel Tzion. And when he was praying Shacharit, the morning prayers one morning, Yeshua appeared to him, just standing there looking at him. And this happened for a couple mornings in a row. And as a result, he came to faith. And um, he, um, he and much of the Bulgarian Jewish... He was, very, he was very involved in World War II in preserving many of the Jewish people in Bulgaria after the war was over. Rabbi Daniel Tzion, who believed in Yeshua, led most of the Bulgarian Jewish community, several thousand people, to Israel, where he lived until he was, I think, in his late 80s or early 90s. He only died in the last uh, decade or something. Yeah. So that would be an example of how Yeshua is revealing himself to individuals. But it is, going to, it is going to spike. It is going to hit the ceiling at some point. And we haven't seen that yet. So just, you know, hang in there. This is really, really going somewhere. And it's all about Yeshua's heart. It's all about the heart of Messiah, son of Joseph, who's going to reveal himself to his brothers. There's going to be a massive family reunion. There's going to be so much celebration. So much joy. Wow. So that was the one thing that really jumped out at me from that... Um, the, the, from Joseph the Egyptian. Um, the, other, the other item that jumped out at me is how forgiving he was. Like Yeshua taught us to pray every day. Father, please forgive me just like I forgive everybody else. That person who really hurt me. Father, please forgive me just like I forgave them. Just like I forgive them. Ouch. Like that's a, that's a hard-hitting prayer, eh? And um, the Hebrew verb for forgiveness is to salach. Everybody say salach. In Hebrew, they like say sorry or excuse me is slicha. Everybody say slicha. It's the same root, right? And it's, it's, related, it's, it's related to the Hebrew word shalach. Everybody say shalach, which means to send out. Like an apostle in Hebrew is a shaliach, right? And both of these words, salach, to forgive, and shalach, to send, they have the physical action of throwing from yourself, totally letting go. That is the physical picture of forgiveness. 
And it's the hardest thing in the world to do. Because when someone has abused you, has wronged you, has hurt you, when someone has been a jerk to you, it hurts deeply. And it, it, it lowers your quality of life. And everything in you is going to want to hang on to that, to keep a record of the wrongs. And every day Yeshua says, remember to pray to Abba and say, Father, I pray that you'd forgive me just like I forgive that person. And that is something we cannot do as human beings. We cannot do that. When we are wounded, we cannot heal necessarily in and of ourselves. We cannot let stuff go. It just goes too deep. And we have too much pride. I believe that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. It's only the Holy Spirit that can heal your heart. It's only the Holy Spirit that can set you free to let go of stuff. And you know what? It may hurt a thousand times a day. A thousand times a day, the, the dark cloud of your pain may eclipse the sunlight again. And you have to let go again, and let go again, and let go again. And don't pick up your pen, and don't start keeping the record of wrongs. Because the Father forgave you, and He let it go. And He's not keeping a record of your wrongs. He didn't just drop the pen, He threw the pen away. That's your Father. So, we totally see that with Joseph. Maybe this is the key. There are two perspectives whereby you can view life. Um, Paul, in Romans chapter 8, he talked about the mind of the flesh how you think, like just as a normal human being, and the mind of the Spirit. How you think when you're doing life with, with Yeshua, when you're tight with Him, when you're looking at life from a spiritual perspective. Right? He said, the mind of the flesh, God's enemy, can't agree with God. Mind of the Spirit, it's life. And Joseph is an awesome picture of the mind of the Spirit. Because when his brothers came down, if he, was a, if he had the mind of the flesh, he'd be like, you guys totally rejected me. You didn't care. And... I'm going to line you up and I'm going to kill you one by one because that's what you deserve. And you know what? That is what they deserved. That's what the mind of the flesh would say. It would look at people as people and it would retaliate like a human being. But the mind of the spirit that Joseph said, instead of looking at people and saying people, he looked at people and he saw God. And he said, you guys didn't do that. God did that. You guys didn't send me down to Egypt. God sent me down to Egypt. And there was a reason. So, for those of you who have had pain in your life, who have pain in your life, from fallen human beings who are so messed up, just remember, there's a reason. There really is. If you stay focused on God, if you hold to your integrity, like Joseph, eh? So be, be encouraged with that. Um, let's look at two things that Yeshua said in the, the book of Matthew also, and then we can have some discussion on this parsha. In the book of Matthew, chapters 23 to 25, um, Yeshua is talking about the end of days. And um, there are some denominations or churches that base most of who they are on their eschatology. Your eschatology is what you believe about the end of days, right? And so, you know, if you read their statement of faith, they'll be like, this is what we believe. We are, we are pre-tribulation, whatever. Like, and it's kind of like, this is the hill that we will die on. You know, this is, this is our rallying cry. Um, I, think, I think the study of the end of days is important because it's in the scriptures. But this is not a hill that I suggest you would ever want to divide over or that you would ever want to die on. I would die on hills like the deity of Yeshua, um, our mission to make disciples, um, immersion in water. Those are hills to die on because they're explicitly stated over and over. Um, There are some people, I know, there are some people who visit our congregation or part of it who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, for instance. And, uh, you know, that it's not like we separate over stuff like that. But I, I want to look at this with you for a second because... Um, Man, when it comes, like, there are some, um, 
let's call them eschatological Frankensteins out there. You know Frankenstein, like all of these different body parts, and they were kind of sewed together, and then somehow electricity gets zapped. I didn't even see the movie, but you hear about him enough, you kind of get the idea, right? And then he gets zapped with electricity and comes to life, and it's like, we created a monster. And unfortunately, often we have like theological Frankensteins. Take a verse here, take a bit there, take something out of context, sew it all together, and then put a zap of your personal charisma or your denominational power in it, and you've got a Frankenstein running around. And I, okay, I, I, will, I, will, I will share with you my opinion. My opinion is that the idea that the church is going to be raptured out before the tribulation and the Jews are going to be left behind, my opinion is that's, a, that's a, an eschatological Frankenstein. You get it from a verse here, a verse there, but there are some verses that just don't fit that paradigm. Some very important verses. And also, when you just read the words of Yeshua, the red letters in Matthew chapter 24... My conclusion would be, Yeshua was talking to his guys like they were going to go through that time period. Let's, let's just look at it together for a minute. I'll share with you how I see it, right? Uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, he says, When you see the abomination of desolation set up, Yeshua is talking to his Talmudim. He's talking to the Messianic community, the church, shall we say. And he's saying, you're going to see the abomination of desolation set up. And head for the hills when you see that happening. Um, he goes on to say, Then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So he says the abomination of desolation, that's going to be happening in conjunction with, or at the start of, a period of time that he termed the great tribulation. The biggest trouble this world has ever seen. Intense pressure, massive crisis, especially for the people of God. What does he say after that? He says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. So like, unless that time had been abbreviated somehow, nobody on the planet would survive. It's like the end of the game for the human race. But those days are going to be cut short for who? The elect, the chosen. Let me ask you, would that make any sense for God to abbreviate those days if he'd already evacuated the chosen from planet earth and they weren't no that doesn't make any sense and someone might say well that's talking about Israel physical Israel they're the chosen so God abbreviated those days for physical Israel I'm sorry that doesn't make sense either that, that, that would suggest that God has like multiple chosen sets of people God has one people and we are all we are all chosen through our membership in covenant relationship with him that just that idea doesn't fly. He goes on to say, then, everybody say then, in verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him. Did you hear that? He said then, during that time. He goes on to say, yeah, I've told you in advance. Then in verse 29, scroll on a bit more, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, there will be some phenomena in the heavens, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and the Son of Man will come and will send forth his messengers and gather together his chosen. So when does the Master, according to his chronology, gather his chosen people together? At the beginning or at the end of this period of time? At the end. If you just, if you just read the passage, if you just read it chronologically, it certainly appears to say that he is going to come at the end and he's going to gather his chosen in then. Um, 
And then he concludes by saying, but you don't know which day, and you don't know the exact time, so stay on the alert and be ready for me to come at any time. Um, Okay, most people will say, this is how you be saved. And then they'll often say, like, pray the sinner's prayer, um, and then do a couple different things. And for many people, they'll be like, yeah, I'm saved because I prayed the sinner's prayer, or because I went to church a while ago, or something. Um, this, maybe this gives us a bigger picture of salvation. Yeshua in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, says the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. Hear that? It's a marathon. It's not a hundred yard dash. You don't just burn intensely for two months and then burn out. Endure to the end. He who endures to the end will be saved. So there's a place for just hanging in there and toughing it out. And he will, he will pull you through, right? Um, look at the verse right um, before that too. Matthew 24, 12, he says, Most people's love will grow cold. Why? Because lawlessness is increased. The Greek word there is anomia. Everybody say anomia. The nomos is the law of the Torah. Anomia means like amoral means without morals. Anomia means without the Torah, without law. And that terrifies me because there is a move in the Western world today and it began as a secular movement um, that basically discarded all absolutes, that discards any sense of law. And that's very popular today. It's a lawless concept. And unfortunately, we have our own Christian version of that. Sometimes it even goes under the phrase, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And I agree, it is all about relationship, not about religion. But sometimes people say that and they think, yeah, it's about relationship so I can do whatever I want. And God's law has no place in my life. Ouch. So I just, I just encourage you, if you want to keep strong and hot in your love for the Master, if you want to burn brightly during the darkest times, cultivate a healthy love for the law of God. Value discipline. Value the structure that he's given. You know, go back and read the Torah for yourself and say, Yeshua, I want to do everything in this thing that you said to do. And everything that you said not to do, I don't want to do that stuff. Because in the process, you'll find that love for God increasing. And uh, that's a very, that's a very um, simple but effective safeguard towards um, just staying safe. Uh, one last thing I'll leave you with from this passage. In Matthew 24, 20, Yeshua is talking to his Talmudim, his disciples, and he says, pray that your flight won't be on the winter or on Shabbat. Yeshua expected that his disciples would still be doing Shabbat. Why else would you pray that? Let's just think about the possibilities. You could maybe surmise, okay, Yeshua's disciples are in Israel, and a lot of things shut down in Israel. So, you know, um, there aren't as many taxis or buses running. So maybe Yeshua was thinking that his people wouldn't care about Shabbat, and they'd be really sloppy with that one, even though God said it's an eternal sign of his covenant. And so, you know, there didn't be, you, should, you should pray that it won't happen on Shabbat, because then the taxis won't be running, and you won't be able to get away in a taxi. Um, I mean, just, I'm sorry, it just that doesn't make sense. That's really inconsistent. You'd think it would actually be better because if everything's shut down, the streets are open and you can, you can make a beeline out of there a little faster on Shabbat. The avenues of escape would be more open. You're not going to have, um, you know, something like that. I, that. Other than that, I just, I can't even, okay, another thing maybe people would say is, well, that's just for the Jewish people. 
So, you know, Yeshua expected the Jewish people to continue to value Shabbat and to observe Shabbat to such a level they wouldn't even want to flee on Shabbat. But then what about all the rest of Yeshua's people? Do the Jewish people get Shabbat on Saturday and they get to value that beautiful sign of the covenant and then Yeshua's Gentile disciples get to just have Sunday? Or just don't get anything? I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me. Maybe Yeshua relates to his bride as a whole in the same way. I believe that. So I, I encourage you, look up that verse and read some commentaries. It's, it's, just, it's a very powerful verse that says that Yeshua expected that we as his people would continue to cherish Shabbat, we continue to practice Shabbat to such a degree we wouldn't even really want to travel long distances on Shabbat or flee if we don't have to. Isn't that interesting? And I mean, you know, some of us do have to drive on Shabbat to get to congregation and stuff. I'm not talking about that. But, um, you know, for many of us, it's like, yeah, I don't care. I'll go shopping on Shabbat. I'll, I'll, um, I'll schedule my flight on Saturday. And when you read this verse... Yeshua is saying, I expect that you'll actually value Shabbat to such a degree you won't even want to travel on Shabbat. You'll really preserve that day. You'll protect the sanctity of it. That's how I would read that verse. And again, is that a legalistic thing? No. It's about staying hot in your love for God. When you value the law of God, when you apply it, it's going to keep your love hot for Him. Shalom. I'm Izzy Avraham. And thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.